Chapter 13 of Memories and Adventures This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by A Fine Voice Memories and Adventures by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Chapter 13 Egypt in 1896 Life in Egypt Accident the men who made Egypt, up the Nile, the salt lakes, adventure in the desert, the Coptic monastery, Colonel Lewis, a surprise. The wretched microbe which had so completely disorganised our lives, and which had produced all the sufferings so patiently borne, now seemed to be latent, and it was hoped that if we spent a winter in Egypt, the cure might be complete. During this short visit, to England, whither I had to rush every now and again in order to adjust my affairs. I met Grant Allen at luncheon, and he told me that he had also suffered from consumption, and that he had found his salvation in the soil and air of Hindhead in Surrey. It was quite a new idea to me that we might actually live with impunity in England once more, and it was a pleasant thought, after resigning oneself to a life which was unnatural to both of us, at foreign health resorts. I acted very promptly, for I rushed down to Hindhead, bought an admirable plot of ground, put the architectural work into the hands of my old friend and fellow psychic researcher, Mr Ball of South Sea, and saw the builder chosen and everything in train before leaving England in the autumn of 1895. If Egypt was a success, we should have a roof of our own to which to return. The thought of it brought renewed hope to the sufferer. I then set forth, picked up my wife and my sister Lottie at Coe, and took them on by easy stages through Italy, stopping a few days at Rome, and so to Brindisi, where we picked up a boat for Egypt. Once at Cairo, we took up our quarters at the Mina Hotel, in the very shadow of the pyramids, and there we settled down for the winter. I was still doing the Brigadier Gerard stories at the time, which required a good deal of historical research, but I had brought my materials with me, and all I lacked was the energy, which I found it most difficult to find in that enervating land. On the whole, it was a pleasant winter, and led up to a most unforeseen climax. I ascended the Great Pyramid once, and was certainly never tempted to do so again, and was content to watch the struggles of the endless drove of tourists who attempted that uncomfortable and useless feat. There was golf of sorts, and there was riding. I was still an immature horseman, but I felt that only practice would help me, so I set forth upon weird steeds provided by the livery stables opposite. As a rule, they erred on the side of dullness, but I have a very vivid recollection of one which restored the average. If my right eyelid droops somewhat over my eye, it is not the result of philosophic brooding, but it is the doing of a black devil of a horse with a varminty head slab-sided ribs and restless ears. I disliked the look of the beast, and the moment I threw my leg over him he dashed off, as if it were a race. Away we went across the desert, I with one foot in the stirrup, holding on as best I might. It is possible I could have kept on until he was weary, but he came suddenly on cultivated land, and his forelegs sank in a moment over his fetlocks. The sudden stop threw me over his head, but I held on to the bridle, and he, pawing about with his front hoofs, 
struck me over the eye and made a deep star-shaped wound which covered me with blood. I led him back and a pretty sight I presented as I appeared before the crowded veranda. Five stitches were needed, but I was thankful, for very easily I might have lost my sight. My wife was well enough now to join in society, while my sister was just at an age to enjoy it, so that we saw little of the very jovial life of Cairo, though the fact that Mina is some seven miles out, on the most monotonous road in the world, saved us from any excess. It was always a task to get in and out, so that only a great temptation would draw us. I joined in male society, however, a good deal, and learned to know many of those great men who were shaping the new destinies of Egypt. I sketched some of them at the time in two paragraphs, which may be quoted. There is a broad and comfortable sofa in the hall of the Turf Club, and if you sit there about luncheon time, you will see a fair sprinkling of Anglo-Egyptians, men who have helped to make and are still helping to make the history of our times. You have a view of the street from where you are, and perhaps in the brilliant sunshine a carriage flies past with two running sightseers before it, and an English coachman upon the box. Within, one catches a glimpse of a strong florid face with a close-cropped, soldierly grey moustache, the expression good-humoured and inscrutable. This is Lord Cromer, whom Egypt has changed from a major of gunners to a peer of the realm, while he in turn has changed it from a province of the east to one of the west. One has but to look at him to read the secret of his success as a diplomatist. His clear head, his brave heart, his physical health and his nerves of iron are all impressed upon you even in that momentary glance at his carriage. And that lounging NUA attitude is characteristic also most characteristic at this moment, when few men in the world can have more pressing responsibility upon their shoulders. It is what one could expect from the man who, at the most critical moment of recent Egyptian history, is commonly reported to have brought diplomatic interviews to an abrupt conclusion, with the explanation that the time had come for his daily lawn-tennis engagement. It is no wonder that so strong a representative should win the confidence of his own countrymen, but he has made as deep an impression upon the native mind, which finds it difficult under this veiled protectorate of ours to estimate the comparative strength of individuals. Suppose Khedive tell Lord Cromer go. Lord Cromer go? asked my donkey boy, and so put his chocolate finger upon the central point of the whole situation. But this is a digression from the turf club, where you are seated upon a settee in the hall and watching the Englishmen who have done so much to regenerate Egypt. Of all the singular experiences of this most venerable land, surely this rebuilding at the hands of a little group of bustling, clear-headed Anglo-Saxons is the most extraordinary. There are Garstin and Wilcox, the great water captains, who have coaxed the Nile to right and to left, until the time seems to be coming when none of its waters will ever reach the Mediterranean at all. There is Kitchener, tall and straight, a grim, silent soldier, with the wheel of a dervish bullet upon his face. There you may see Rogers, who stamped out the cholera, Scott, who reformed the law, Palmer, who relieved the overtaxed Fellaheen, Hooker, who exterminated the locusts, Wingate, who knows more than any European of the currents of feeling in the Sudan, the same Wingate who reached his arm out a thousand miles and plucked Slatin out of Khartoum and beside him the small man with the yellow-brown moustache and the cheery ruddy face is Slatin himself, 
whose one wish in the world now is to have the Khalifa at his sword point, that Khalifa at whose heels he had to run for so many weary years. Shortly after the opening of the new year of 1896, we went in one of Cook's boats up the river, getting as far as the outposts of civilization at Wadi Halfa. The banks in the upper reaches were not too safe, as raiders on camels came down at times, but on the water one was secure from all the chances of fate. At the same time I thought that the managers of these tours took undue risks, and when I found myself on one occasion on the rock of Abusir, with a drove of helpless tourists, male and female, nothing whatever between us and the tribesmen, and a river between us and the nearest troops, I could not but think what an appalling situation would arise if a little troop of these far-riding camel-men were to appear. We had four Negro soldiers as an escort, who would be helpless before any normal raiding party. It was the strong impression which I there received which gave me the idea of taking a group of people of different types and working out what the effect of so horrible an experience would be upon each. This became the tragedy of the Korosko, published in America as A Desert Drama, and afterwards dramatised with variations as The Fires of Fate. All went well as a matter of fact, but I thought then, and experienced British officers agreed with me, that it was unjustifiable. As the whole frontier force was longing for an excuse to advance, I am not sure that they would not have welcomed it if the dervishes had risen to the ground bait, which every week in the same place was laid in front of them. I do not know how many temples we explored during that tour, but they seemed to me endless, some dating back to the mists of antiquity, and some as recent as Cleopatra and the Roman period. The majestic continuity of Egyptian history seems to be its most remarkable feature. You examine the tombs of the first dynasty at Abydos, and there you see carved deep in the stone the sacred hawk, the goose, the clover, the signs of Horus and Osiris, of Upper and Lower Egypt. These were carved long before the pyramids were built, and can hardly be less ancient than 4000 BC. Then you inspect a temple built by the Ptolemies, after the date of Alexander the Great, and there you see the same old symbols cut in the same old way, there is nothing like this in the world. The Roman and the British empires are mushrooms in comparison. Judged by Egyptian standards, the days of Alfred the Great will be next door to our own, and our customs, symbols and way of thinking the same. The race seems to have petrified, and how they could do so without being destroyed by some more virile nation is hard to understand. Their arts seem to have been high, but their reasoning power in many ways contemptible. The recent discovery of the king's tomb near Thebes, I write in 1924, shows how wonderful were their decorations and the amenities of their lives. But consider the tomb itself. What a degraded intelligence does it not show? The idea that the body, the old outworn greatcoat, which was once wrapped round the soul, should at any cost be preserved, is the last word in materialism and the hundred baskets of provisions to feed the soul upon its journey? I can never believe that a people with such ideas could be other than emasculated in their minds. The fate of every nation which comes under the rule of a priesthood. It had been suggested that I should go out to the salt lakes in the desert, some fifty miles from Cairo, and see the old Coptic monastery there. Those ancient monasteries, the abode alternately of saints and perverts, 
we saw specimens of each, have always aroused my keen interest, dating as they do to very early days of Christianity. Indeed, their date is often unknown, but everything betokens great age, and the spirit which founded them seems to have been that of the hermits, who in the third and fourth centuries swarmed in these wildernesses. Leaving my wife at Mina, I went with Colonel Lewis of the Egyptian army, an excellent companion and guide. On arriving at a wayside station, we found a most amazing vehicle awaiting us, a sort of circus coach, all gilding and frippery. It proved to be the coach of state which had been prepared for Napoleon III, on the chance that he would come to open the Suez Canal. It was surely a good bit of work, for here it was still strong and fit, but absurdly out of place in the majestic simplicity of the Libyan desert. Into this we got and set forth the only guide being wheel marks across the sand, which in some of the harder places were almost invisible. The great sand waste rolled in yellow billows all around us, and far behind us the line of green trees marked the course of the Nile. Once a black dot appeared which, as it grew nearer, proved to be some sort of oriental on foot. As he came up to us he opened a blackened mouth, pointed to it and cried, Boya! Boya! which means water. We had none, and could only point encouragingly to the green belt behind us, on which with a curse he staggered upon his way. A surprising adventure befell us, for the heavens suddenly clouded over and rain began to fall, an almost unknown thing in those parts. We lumbered on, however, with our two horses, while Colonel Lewis, who was keen on getting fit, ran behind. I remember saying to him that in my wildest dreams I never thought that I should drive across the Libyan desert in an emperor's coach with a full colonel as carriage-dog. Presently, in the fading light, the horses slowed down, the Nubian driver descended and began alternately scanning the ground and making gestures of despair. We realised then that he had lost the tracks, and therefore that we had no notion where we were, though we had strong reasons to believe that we were to the south of the route. The difficulty was to know which was north and which south. It was an awkward business, since we had no food or water, and could see no end to our troubles. The further we moved, the deeper we should be involved. Night had closed in, and I was looking up at the drifting scud above us, when in the chink of two clouds I saw for an instant a cluster of stars, and made sure that they were the four wheels of Charles's wain. I am no astronomer, but I reasoned that this constellation would lie to the north of us, and so it proved, for when we headed that way, examining the ground every hundred yards or so with matches, we came across the track once more. Our adventures, however, were not over, and it was all like a queer dream. We had great difficulty in keeping the track in the darkness, and the absurd coach lumbered and creaked while we walked with lanterns ahead of it. Suddenly, to our joy, we saw a bright light in the gloom. We quickened our pace, and came presently to a tent with a florid bearded man seated outside it, beside a little table, where he was drawing by the light of a lamp. The rain had cleared now, but the sky was still overcast. In answer to our hail, this man rather gruffly told us that he was a German surveyor at work in the desert. He motioned with his hand when we told him whither we were bound, and said it was close by. After leaving him we wandered on, and losing the tracks we were again very badly bushed. It seemed an hour or two before, to our joy, we saw a light ahead, and prepared for a night's rest at the halfway house, which was our immediate destination. 
but when we reached the light what we saw was a florid bearded man sitting outside a small tent with a lamp upon a table. We had moved in a circle. Fresh explanations, and this time we really did keep to the track and reached a big deserted wooden hut where we put up the horses, ate some cold food and tumbled, very tired, into two of the bunks which lined it. The morrow made amends for all. It broke cold and clear, and I have seldom felt a greater sense of exhilaration than when I awoke and, walking out before dressing, saw the whole endless desert stretching away on every side of me, yellow sand and black rock to the blue shimmering horizon. We harnessed up and within a few hours came on the Natron Lake, a great salt lake, with a few scattered houses at one end, where the workers dry out and prepare the salt. A couple of miles off was the lonely monastery, which we had come to see, less lonely now, but before the salt works were established, one of the most inaccessible places one could imagine. It consisted of a huge outer wall, which seemed to be made of hardened clay. It had no doors or windows, save one little opening which could be easily defended against the prowling Arabs. But I fear the garrison would not be very stout-hearted, for it was said to be the fear of military service which caused many of the monks to discover that they had a vocation. On being admitted, I was conscious that we were not too welcome, though the military title of my companion commanded respect. We were shown round the inner courtyard, where there were palm trees in a garden, and then round the scattered houses within the wall. Near the latter there was, I remember, a barrel full of some substance which seemed to me, both by look and feel, to be rounded pieces of some light stone, and I asked if it were to hurl down at the Arabs if they attacked the door. It proved to be the store of bread for the monastery. We were treated to wine which was sweet tent wine, which is still used, I believe, in the Holy Communion, showing how straight our customs come from the East. The abbot seemed to me to be a decent man, but he complained of illness and was gratified when I overhauled him thoroughly, percussed his chest, and promised to send him out some medicine from Cairo. I did so, but whether it ever reached my remote patient, I never learned. Some of the brothers, however, looked debauched, and there was a general air of nothing to do, which may have been deceptive, but which certainly impressed me that day. As I looked from the walls and saw the desert on all sides, unbroken, save for one blue corner of the salt lake, it was strange to consider that this was all which these men would ever see of the world, and to contrast their fate with my own busy and varied existence. There was a library, but the books were scattered on the floor, all of them old and some no doubt rare. Since the discovery of the Codex Sinaiticus, I presume that all these old Coptic libraries have been examined by scholars, but it certainly seemed to me that there might be some valuable stuff in that untidy heap. Next evening Colonel Lewis and I were back in Cairo. We heard no news upon the way, and we had reached the turf club and were in the cloakroom washing our hands before dinner, when some man came in and said, Why, Lewis, how is it you are not with your brigade? My brigade? Have you been away? Yes, at the Natron Lakes. Good heavens, have you heard nothing? No. Why, man, war is declared. We are advancing on Dongola. The whole army is concentrating on the frontier, and you are in command of an advanced brigade. Good God! Lewis's soap splashed into the water, and I wonder he did not fall plump on the floor. Thus it was that we learned of the next adventure which was opening up before both us and the British Empire. End of chapter 13